Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. If you're using a few Bible, turn to page 1130 and you'll arrive at Romans chapter 7. We're continuing our study of sanctification and in particular the role of the law as it relates to a life of holy living. When we were justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we were united to Him spiritually in His death, burial, and resurrection. The Bible tells us that that union with Jesus Christ included a transferal from one age to another. That we formerly lived in the old age, apart from Christ, but now in union with Him, we live in the new age. The old age, the Bible tells us, is characterized by slavery to sin and its eventual result, eternal death. Romans 6.23 the power of that old age is the law. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. But we live in the new age. The new age. And that new age is characterized by a slavery to grace. Paul says, Romans 6, verse 14. And its result, eternal life. The power of the new age is the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit. Romans 8 and verse 9. Paul describes this movement from one realm to the other as a contrast. And in fact, he deliberately contrasted in verse 6 of Romans chapter 7 as a newness of the Spirit contrasted with the oldness of the letter. Theologians call this the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. What they mean by that is that there is a, a difficulty, a tension that exists still in the lives of the believers because although we are a new creation in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we continue to live in this world, don't we? And we not only live in this world, we live in the same bodies both before and after our redemption. And so it is as if we have a foot in one world and a foot in the other simultaneously living or in contact with, maybe a better way to say it, the old realm, the old age, and the new. The already and the not yet. Already transferred to the new realm, the new age, the new kingdom, but not yet all the way there. And so the repeated exhortation of the New Testament 
is for us to stop living like we were totally a member of that old realm and to live as we really are a member of the new. That's what the New Testament is all about. Start living like citizens of the new realm, the new kingdom, the new age into which you have been transferred by the Spirit of Christ. This change of behavior that is supposed to characterize our lives is a result of a change of thinking. A change of thinking. And it is the direct product of of understanding the theological reality of the transferal that has really occurred. As I said, before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you looked a certain way. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, nothing changed in terms of your outward appearance. Same body. Same body. But there has been a real transferal, a real change, a real movement from one age to the other. And and so what Paul would say to us, in fact, what the New Testament would say to us is that we must understand the theological reality of what has happened and we must begin to live our lives in light of that truth. And that regardless of how we feel, we are no longer slaves of the old age. Sin no longer has absolute dominion over us. The power of sin being the law no longer rules in our lives. Instead, we live in the new age. We are enslaved to grace and we are empowered by the indwelling Spirit of Christ. Something real has happened. Paul says in Romans 12, verses, or verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and Perfect. You are to no longer be conformed by the patterns of the old age. You are to be transformed by the new. Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8 is where Paul unfolds in the most systematic way for us the means by which we as believers gain victory in our struggle against sin in which we live out our citizenship of the new age. And in these three chapters, he teaches really four really important lessons. Four really important lessons that you could sort of boil this whole section down to. And what he would have for us is to understand these four truths, these four important lessons, and then pattern our lives accordingly. Do not be conformed to the old world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Think about reality and then pattern your life after that thinking. I'm just going to give them to you really quickly. It's a, it's a big overview of this section. And I think I think it's important that we continue to hammer this home because as we look at the details, I don't want to lose sight of the forest by virtue of looking at the trees. So let me give you that first important truth. A truth you must understand and you must act upon. 
It is as a believer you were crucified with Christ. And thus sin no longer has absolute power over you. That is the message of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. You were crucified with Christ, and thus sin no longer has its absolute power over you. You must therefore believe and act upon this truth by resisting sin. That's what Paul would tell you. Believe it and act upon it by resisting sin. Secondly, Paul instructs us in chapter 7 of Romans that the law belongs to the old age. It is part of that old realm from which you have been transferred. And because it is of the old age, it is powerless to restrain sin. It is powerless to restrain sin. In fact, just the opposite. It is the power of sin. The law. Now, the law is holy, righteous, and good, yet it merely inflames sin and strengthens its power. Therefore, placing ourselves under the law cannot advance the cause of holiness but leads only to frustration. Frustration. The frustration that's shown to us in the latter half of Romans chapter 7. The third important truth that overarches these three chapters is that the power of the new age is the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it is only as we are led by Him that we can have victory over sin. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. The end of verse 3, it says, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul says over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The power of the new age, the new realm, the realm in which we as followers of Jesus Christ live is the indwelling Spirit of God. Fourth, we still have a foot in both worlds. We still have a foot in both worlds. We still live, as it were, in both worlds. And we groan for our release from the old age and our full and final entrance into the new. There is a groaning that goes on. But Paul says, in spite of the difficulties... In spite of the times when the new age looks to be a long, long, long way off, we have a confident assertion that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the reason that's true, the reason is the elective work of God on our behalf. It is because of God's sovereign election 
that your citizenship in the new age is absolutely secured. That is the message of the latter half of Romans chapter 8. Listen to what Paul says, beginning in verse 28. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren and whom he predestined. These he also called and whom he called these he also justified and whom he justified these he also glorified. Notice they're all past tense, past tense. This golden chain of redemption is your security to understand that although the fight with the old age is still going on, and although you slip, you fall, you slide back into the mud, be assured if you know Jesus Christ by faith, you are absolutely here in the new age and you will inherit the kingdom. And that God will be glorified in you and that he is conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ so that you will someday stand in his presence. That's the message. Romans 6, 7 and 8. That's the grand sweep of these three chapters. But we need to look at the details. We need to look at all the details. There's power in the details. So let's work through them together. Back to chapter 7. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 7. Romans 7, beginning at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not wish to do, I agree with the law confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, 
But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This back half of Romans chapter 7, really beginning in verse 7 through 25, can be divided into two sections. Two sections with verse 13 as the connecting link between those two sections. So verses 7 through 12 is one section. Verse 13, the connecting link of the second section is 14 through 25. Verses 7 through 12, just noting some things. Paul speaks there in the past tense. He uses past tense verbs. And in this section, he shows how sin uses the law to bring about death. In verses 14 through 25, he uses present tense verbs. And he describes the constant battle between the mind which agrees with God's law and the flesh or the members which are given to the law of sin. The obvious conclusion, I think, from both of these sections is that the law of God arouses sin and is impotent to break its power. That's the overriding message. Now, beyond that, there are some interpretive questions for this section that we need to at least pause and look at. This is a battleground in the book of Romans. You can stack up the commentaries, and I have. I think I might have as many as among other places, but in particular over this section of Romans 7. And if you do exegesis by majority rule, you can sort of stack up your favorites and decide what they think, and maybe that's the way you go, but there are many good men that look at it differently. This is a difficult section. The use of the past tense verbs in 7 through 12 and the present tense verbs in 14 through 25 and the repeated use of the first person pronoun I, which appears all through this section, raises all kinds of interpretive questions. So let me see if I can try to resolve them a little bit. Regardless of how we come out on this, and let me just say this as an aside, regardless of how you come out, whether you understand it the way I now understand it or you have your own 
interpretation of this passage. Don't miss the overarching point. And that's why I gave you such a long introduction. Regardless of how you understand the past and present tense verbs and the use of the I, don't miss the overarching lesson, which is the law is impotent to curb your sin. And in fact, inflames it. Regardless of how you understand everything else, don't miss that. So the big issue I want to just talk to you about this morning for a minute or two is the identity of the I. The I. Verse 7, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said. I, verse 9, was once apart from the law. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, it killed me. I, 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 I. It runs all through this section. Who's Paul talking about? Who is he talking about? As I said, through the centuries, very skillful Bible commentators have come up with various understandings of the use of the eye here. I'll give you the three most popular. The first is that this whole section from 7 through 25 is autobiographical. Autobiographical. That, that means that Paul is speaking from his own experience. Paul is speaking from his own experience with the law, both past and present. The second is that this section is representative of Israel. Representative of Israel. What that means is that Paul is identifying himself with Israel and he is speaking about their experience under the law of Moses. And his use of the I is that he is speaking in solidarity with his people, the nation of Israel. Representative. The third most popular view is that this whole section is universally representative. That is that the use of the eye, Paul is identifying himself with humanity. He is representing all people in general and their, their confrontation with the law. So it's Paul speaking about himself and his own experience. It's Paul speaking in solidarity with Israel and their experience. Or it's Paul speaking in solidarity with the whole human race and speaking about their experience. Those are the three main views. Now, the basis of the autobiographical view is pretty strong. If for no other reason, then it seems obvious, right? When Paul says, I, 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 that he's referring to who? Himself. And so it is a very, very popular view. But in my mind, it does not seem to fit all the evidence. That the autobiographical view just doesn't seem to account for all the evidence, in particular what we know about the Apostle Paul from other passages, speaking about his days before his conversion when he was a very self-satisfied Pharisee. Who in his own words, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, said he was blameless as to the righteousness found in the law. Beyond that, the intense struggle that is played out in verses 14 through 25 don't seem to fit into the context of the life of the Apostle Paul either. As far as we know it. Beyond that, it, it seems to 
to contradict his clear statements in chapter six, where he says that we are no longer slaves to sin, but that it no longer rules over us. And in verse 14, he says, sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. And so the intense struggle with the law and sin that's going on in the back half of chapter seven just doesn't seem to fit with what Paul's already taught. Furthermore, it doesn't really seem to fit with what he says in chapter 8 and in verse 4 about walking in the Spirit. It's almost as if in chapter 7, if Paul's speaking about himself, he's kind of forgotten what he already taught and what he's about to teach. So there are many, many good commentators who take that view, but I just don't think it works. The third view that Paul is speaking representatively for all people doesn't work for me either. And the reason it doesn't work for me is pretty clear. And that is that the context of this whole chapter is the Mosaic law. It is the law of Moses. When it says the law, the law, the law, it's talking about the law of Moses. And you can be sure of it in verse 7 where it cites the 10th commandment. The whole world was never, ever, ever under the Mosaic Covenant. The only people who have ever been under the Mosaic Covenant is the nation of Israel. Only Israel. So the universal view doesn't work for me, and that leads me to the second view. That Paul is speaking representatively for the nation of Israel here. Now, the I is not Israel, it is Paul, but it is Paul in solidarity with Israel. When he uses I, when he refers to himself, when he says, I, verse 7, would not have come to know sin except through the law, he is speaking about himself in solidarity with the nation of Israel. Now, there are a number of places in the Old Testament where the prophet uses the first person pronoun to to speak of the nation of Israel or the city of Jerusalem. That is not an uncommon way to communicate for the Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah 10, verses 19 to 22. Lamentations 1, 19 to 22. Chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Micah chapter 7, 7 through 10. Those are just a few. So it's not uncommon. It's not an uncommon way to communicate. Beyond that, the notion of corporate identity by which the individual Jew identifies with his people's history is very familiar to the Jewish people, particularly in their celebration of the Passover ritual in which each Jew confessed that he or she was a slave in Egypt and had been redeemed through the events of the Passover. There is a very strong sense within the nation of Israel of corporate identity. It's a little hard for us to get our arms around. We're so individualistic. By the way, that's an important hermeneutical principle for interpretation of the Scriptures, corporate identity. If you don't consider that, you will not be able to understand what's going on in the Bible. Corporate identity, it's important. Beyond that, verse 9 says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, 
It seems to me with the clear reference to the Mosaic law that this is a very natural way for the Apostle Paul to refer to the giving of the law at Sinai. The law came at Sinai. It came to the nation of Israel. It's hard for me to understand how the law could have come to Paul personally, individually. That somehow he was at one point apart from the law. You're talking about the son of a Pharisee. There's no sense in which any Jew was ever apart from the law, even before their bar mitzvah. So I'm persuaded that the I here is Paul's literary device. It's the literary device by which he includes himself with Israel in their encounter with the Mosaic law. Now, it's time to interpret the verses. Let's see what he has to say. Last week, we raised and answered two questions. Remember, last week, two questions. One, is the law evil? Verse 7. Secondly, does the law have a purpose? Second part of verse 7. This morning, what I want to do with you is just ask and answer two more questions that are brought up in this section. Verses 7 through 13. I just want to ask and answer two more questions so that we can further understand why the law cannot sanctify you. So what I want to do is look at the law historically. Verse 7, but what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covenant. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law sin is dead. Paul continues to personify sin here. That is, he, he speaks of sin as if it is a, an entity, a person. And what he says here is this, this enemy has established a beachhead. Verse 8, taking opportunity. Do you see that? But sin, taking opportunity. The word used there could be translated, establishes a beachhead or a base of operations. Sin establishes a base of operations through the law. Through the commandment. To achieve its desired effect of killing its host. In order to kill its host. How? In what way does sin use the law to establish the beachhead, Paul? When Israel was confronted by the Mosaic law back at Sinai and all its limitations that were rightfully imposed upon them by their sovereign They were stimulated to open rebellion. Do you remember? They were given the command not to make any idols, right? The first commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. And it was after that that they asked Aaron to fashion for them what? A golden calf. Exodus 32. It is the imposition of the rules and the regulations that came with the law that stimulated their heart to open rebellion. That's the beachhead 
I believe Paul is talking about here in verse 8. That's the opportunity that the law creates. There is, in a sense, a universal principle here. And it's because of the sinful tendency that's resident in every single one of us. When we are confronted with rules and regulations, sin immediately abuses those rules and they become like fertilizer, producing much and many more sinful expressions. The more rules you get, the more passionate your desire to rebel against them. I remember a couple of years ago, we, uh, we visited the wild animal park down in San Diego. It was right after they had opened their new safari ride. They have a very long winding path to control the crowds, you know, with the signs that says four and a half hours from this point, you know, whatever. I mean, it's not quite that bad, but it's pretty long. And all along this winding path is just beautifully landscaped. Trees and shrubs and flowers is gorgeous. And there's this winding path. And we were there and it was a hot day. And off to the side, there's a, a place where you can buy cold drinks, you know, cold bottles of water or whatever. And, and we're standing in line like everybody else. I, I, I think exactly where we entered the line, it said an hour and a half from this point. So we're in a long, hot line standing there. And as we began to observe those standing in line with us, what we noticed were that they were getting thirsty. And in order to assuage their thirst, they needed to go and buy a bottle of water. But rather than follow the winding path back out to go get their water and then back in, what people were doing was cutting right straight through all of those beautiful plantings. Stepping over and on the signs that said, please stay on the path. And I think that's a perfect illustration of what law does. It inflames, it creates the opportunity, the beachhead of rebellion. I'm not staying on the path, are you kidding me? If I go this way, I can cut right straight through, they get my bottle of water and get right back again. There's no way I'm walking out this path. And such is the law. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, Paul says, verse 8. He goes on and he says, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. In the years before Sinai, Israel was alive. They were alive in the sense that sin was not yet imputed to them. It was not yet charged to them as a transgression or as a, a law breaking. That's what Paul says over in Romans 5.13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. They were alive apart from the law. Sin was dead in the sense that it wasn't active or powerful or not as active, not as powerful before the law as after. Romans 5, verse 20, when the law came in, that transgression might increase. So when God gave the law at Sinai, sin became activated. It turned failure into rebellion. It reversed 
the purpose of the law and it turned it from a life-giving potential into a sentence of death. There's an amazing mystery here. Do you notice this verse 10? And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death to me. God never intended the law as a means of salvation. Never. But it had a life-giving potential for those who could perfectly obey it. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, You shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Or if you like, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28. Behold, a certain teacher stood up and put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. There was life-giving potential in the law. But instead, it ended up producing death. It ended up producing death. How did that happen? How did it happen? The answer is in verse 11. Sin taking opportunity again. A beachhead through the commandment deceived me. And through it, it killed me. Sin used the holy, righteous, and good law as a beachhead to deceive and kill. What does Paul mean? What was the deception? The deception was to think that somehow Israel could actually obey the law and receive the life that it promised to them. But they couldn't. But they couldn't. And in fact, no one can. No one can keep the law and receive the life. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All require a Savior. But Israel was deceived by sin into thinking that the promise of life contained in the law was something they could actually achieve. When in reality, all of their attempts produced nothing but death. Not because the law is sinful, but because it can't be fulfilled. Instead of calling out on the mercy of God, they were deceived and began to deceive themselves into thinking that they were actually fulfilling the law. That they would actually earn the promise of life contained therein. This situation for Israel should be a vivid reminder for all of us. A vivid reminder of the impotency of the law and the deadly deceitfulness of sin. Spiritual life can never be earned through law-keeping, only by received by casting ourselves upon the mercy and grace of God. But there is a mystery here. Augustine wrote, God commands what we cannot do that we may know what we ought to seek from Him. God commands what we cannot do that we may know what we ought to seek from Him. There was life in the law. 
but none could keep it. So preach the law unrelentingly. Parents, preach it to your children. Preach the law to them. Show them how it only inflames the sin in their heart. Continue to preach it to them until they come to understand that their own futile attempts at self-righteousness cannot succeed. And they throw themselves on the mercy of God. Keep them under the law until they cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then they will go home to their house justified. Luke 18, verses 13 and 14. Preach the law to the unconverted. Fourth question in verse 13. Well, does the law cause death then? Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? If the law is good, and Paul says it is, verse 12, it's good, it's holy, righteous. If the law is good, and yet death results from its presence, does that mean that the good thing can be blamed for my death? Maybe said another way, is ice cream to be blamed for making me fat? <laughs> Megan a tie. No, 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 no. The cause of Israel's death was the law's exposure of sin's true character. It was sin who caused the death of Israel. And what the law does is it exposes sin's true character, whether it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. How vile, how perverse, how wicked is sin? It is so bad that it actually takes that which is good and holy and just that which has been ordained to life, and it turns it into the instrument of our death. That's how wicked sin is. It takes God's holy, good, and righteous law, given that they might have life, and makes it the means of their death. There is no greater proof for the wickedness of sin than this. That sin performs its deadly work through that which is holy. Beloved, sin is so dangerous, so deceptive, so deadly, that it thrives upon the very thing that ought to eradicate it. The law. It would be like going out in your driveway and spraying Roundup on the weeds and watching them grow in front of you. Paul has conclusively demonstrated this to us. But we're not Israel. So what's the point? We're not Israel. So what's the point? The point is this. We have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, right? We have been redeemed by Christ. 
But the law continues to perform its deadly work among the unsaved. It continues to to kill them. But beyond that, its inability, the law, that is, its inability to restrain and restrict sin, to produce the life that it was intended for, and instead to be the cause, the beachhead, the opportunity for the death of the unsaved, that same law carried over into the life of the believer cannot help him either. If the law could not save you, it cannot sanctify you. If it was impotent to deal with sin before Christ, it remains impotent after Christ. If you try to achieve holiness by law-keeping, you have nothing but a life of futility and frustration and spiritual weakness awaiting you. That's the point. That's the reason Paul spends so much time talking about why the law cannot restrain sin. Next week, we'll look in close detail at verses 14 through 25. I'll just tip my hand to you. I don't believe that this is the cry of a mature Christian. I think this is the cry of a follower of Jesus Christ who mistakenly tries to live a life pleasing to God by remaining under the law of Moses. Let's pray. Our Father, only You, in Your infinite wisdom, and for Your great glory, could devise a plan of redemption so mysterious and yet so glorious. Whereby You would send Your only Son to die in the place of Your people. To redeem them from under the law. A burden they could not bear. A means by which their sin was inflamed. And yet You sent the perfect One. The One who could and did live under the law. Perfectly, without spot. And who then offered His life as a ransom for those who were desperately in need of it. Our Father, I thank You for such an amazing plan. And not just because I am amazed and I wonder at it all, but because You have personally enabled me to partake in the fruit of it through faith in Jesus Christ. I thank You for Your work of redeeming grace in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here. And pray, my Father, that for those who are here who have yet to taste life, who know the futility of law, 
May you open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ. May they call out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And may they go home to their home today justified. I pray for Christ's name. Amen.